Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of The Courage to Be Disliked by Ichiro Kishima and Fumitaki Koga. How to free yourself, change your life, and achieve real happiness. Too good. Uh, this is probably the most requested book I reckon we've had uh, for people emailing in, uh, podcast at whatyouwillearn.com. Everybody's been sending in that we've got to read this book. I don't want to name names because I'll inevitably forget one, but there's been uh, plenty of people recommended this, and uh, with good reason. It was a good read. When I first started reading it, I thought this was going to be not, not the best book, but <laughs> like a fine wine, I think uh, everything comes together, especially towards the end. And looking back, it's quite a phenomenal book. So this is, uh, I guess, in an undercover sort of a way, it was told through like a bit of a, a conversation between a, a young uh, whippersnapper and an old wise philosopher. Uh, that's what the cool kids say these days. Do they? I've never heard that. I like it. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's actually, I guess, in a in a roundabout way, it's about Adlerian uh, psychology. So Adler was around the you know hundred years ago or so, around the time of uh, your mate Sigmund Freud, uh, but it, just a different take on it. And basically, the philosophy boils down to the fact that the world is simple. Happiness is within reach of every human instantly, and everyone can be happy at any time. So it sounds great. It does sound great. Have a think of this story. If you've ever drunk from a well of water that's just been drawn, you probably haven't, to be honest. But just, let's just imagine you have for a second. And you get to realize it's pretty much the same temperature all year round. The water in the well is about 18 degrees. It's an objective number and it's the same whoever measures it. But of course, uh, if you drink that water in the middle of summer, it's a, a 35 degree day. That water feels so cool and so refreshing. But then at the same time, if you're in the middle of uh, winter and it's freezing, it's snowing, you pull up that water from the depths of the earth and it feels so, so warm and calming. So uh, the water was exactly the same the whole time, but how you experience that water was very different. So as you see the world through dark glasses, everything might seem pretty dark and that's because of your perception. But if that's the case, instead of lamenting about the world's darkness, maybe you can just remove the glasses of the, with the dark shades on it, which is shading everything. When you first take those glasses off, the world is going to seem so bright. Uh, it's going to be blindingly bright. It's going to be a lot easier for you to either just shut your eyes entirely or to whack those glasses back on to darken the world a few shades back to what you're more comfortable with. So a lot of us, we're choosing uh, different sets of glasses, like you'd say, that is actually making our experience much less happy on this world. The world is much less complicated than we'd like to think. Yeah, there's no escaping our subjectivity uh, we feel like the world is getting more and more complicated. We feel like happiness is harder and harder to achieve. But of course, there is an objective world out there where everything is easy and everyone can be happy. It's just us that we're choosing to make it feel complicated and we're choosing to make it seem like it's impossible to be happy. So the issue isn't with the world around us. The issue is with how we are. So we're going to break this book into two episodes because we think there's two cracker ideas that we're separated. In this first episode, we're going to talk about the courage to change and that's taking those sunglasses off and actually changing to make the world less complicated and live a much happier life. The second episode, we're going to hit the title which is the courage to be disliked and how we can separate our own life tasks and not live our whole entire lives for other people. Let's imagine some young bloke, we'll call him Joel, he's uh, locking himself up in the room for years he says he wishes to go out. He wants to go out there and get a job. He wants just to change the way he is. He's fed up with it all. In a sense, he's a pretty useful person and could be you know, great in society, but he's really afraid to leave his room because if he takes just one single step outside, he suffers these heart palpitations. 
his arms shake, his legs shake. He really wants to change, but he just can't. So, if you look at uh, this type of person through the lens of uh, some, I guess, more traditional psychology, something we're more used to today, you look at this person and try to work out what happened to this person, your mate Joel, uh, who um, who just can't seem to, to get a grip. You know, maybe it's because uh, he had a rough relationship with his parents, maybe he was bullied when he was growing up. Maybe there was uh, some kind of trauma that he experienced at school or some great loss in his personal life. Basically, uh, the idea is that something must have happened to this person and it caused him to become so nervous, so anxious and not wanting to go outside. If you ever think about this idea in psychology, somewhat determinism, X happened, so now Joel's acting like Y, that means every single time X happens to a human being, there'll be a very predictable reaction in why but if you look around that's not always necessarily the case yeah one i guess uh extreme example of both extreme trauma but then extreme overcoming of trauma is uh the big bad oprah winfrey uh big in the terms of her level of success in the sense that she was uh first molested by her cousin and her uncle and a family friend all from when she was nine years old um for for a number of a number of years when she was growing up so looking through the the lens of psychology this is some serious trauma and this would really mess you up for a long time. But of course, if you fast forward about two decades later, Oprah Winfrey uh, gets a TV show of her own and for about three decades is pretty much the biggest name mm. in the world. Yeah, it's a real common theme if you've been listening to the podcast for a while. In a, in a lot of books, uh, it's the classic story of the belly of the whale where the hero gets swallowed up by the whale. So, this being a metaphor for the X where something really bad happens and that's not necessarily always the end of the story. Uh, a lot of people who end up successful attribute X for the reason mm. for their success. But then, of course, you've got people like Joel who attribute X for the reason of the failure. Mm. So, what's going on here? Yeah, exactly. So, that's the, uh, the whole problem with, I guess, looking at your causes in that way. So, Adlerian psychology, the big bad Adler, he says that you shouldn't be looking at your past causes to work out what's happening now, but instead, you should be looking at your current goals and your goals are actually going to determine your behavior right now. So, a twist on this story is not necessarily that the friend is insecure so they can't go out because of some trauma. Maybe it's actually they don't want to go out, so he's creating this sense of anxiety. Yeah, this is a very big slap in the face for old mate Joel here and <laughs> and uh, pretty much anyone who's got any kind of emotion that's um, really shooting themselves in the foot because he's saying here that Joel, he's manufacturing this anxiety because he doesn't want to go out and face the world. So, this story he's conjured up is actually achieving his goal, what he actually has deep down. So, in a sense, he's doing exactly what his goals entail. So, what this boils down to is there are sort of two, I guess, branches of psychology one is aetiology, which is the study of this uh, causation, the study of cause and effect. So, that's like Sigmund Freud's idea and it's a very interesting one saying that a person's past traumas cause present unhappiness. So, that's one way of looking at it and it gives us a, a nice story. It gives us something very easy to understand that there's a clear cause and effect, something happened and so now we are acting like this. But that's just one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is uh, Adler's version, which is teleology. So, this teleology is actually a study of purpose of a given phenomena, not its cause. 
So rather than looking at what caused it, we're looking at what is this going to cause in the future, in fact. So it's not as if we are determined by our experiences, but it's actually we're giving them meaning that we determine. This actually really flies in the face of the culture today uh, because it's really denying the existence of trauma altogether, which for a lot of people, it probably just seems kind of ridiculous. I read in uh, a book we're going to do pretty soon, Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And in the book, he talks about trauma creep. So the word trauma in you know a few decades ago, you could only use it if you go in this life-altering car accident or if you go to war and something so far outside of the human experience happens to you that uh, the human brain can't handle it. And then trauma is only for those type of situations. But there's been serious creep with what trauma actually means to the point today where just very day-to-day things happen to you, mate. <laughs> every now and then if someone gets insulted, I remember hearing someone recently got insulted and they use the word trauma to explain <laughs> that experience. So uh, today, I feel like you could argue that the culture is moving toward the former aetology and thinking mm. that it's all about cause and effect. And in one sense, this could be interpreted as a, as a victim, victim attitude. Well, ultimately what happens really is that we determine our lives based on the meaning that we give to experiences. So, for even this morning when I got here and you were, you were walking around stressing out, your car had been looted. <laughs> and so, like, so, one way of looking at that is, uh, I suppose a few ways of looking at it. One is like, oh, I've been personally attacked here. I've been traumatized. Someone's out to get me. That's one meaning you could give to it. One meaning you could say, oh, I'm living in a, a dodgy area. I'm not safe here. I've got to pack up and I've got to move. That's another thing that you could give to it. Uh, but ultimately, what whatever you choose is how you're going to treat it. So, you can just choose that oh, it was just bad luck. I left the car unlocked. I should have locked it up. Uh, this is a random, you know, one out of a million thing that just happened to happen tonight that someone walked past. There was something in the car. The car was unlocked and they had a crack and it was open. They just went for it. That's a, a, a different meaning that you could give it altogether. Yeah, I thought I went pretty well, but then you try to seed me into thinking that it was, uh, oh, yeah, you're living pretty dodgy here, <laughs> dodgy area here, mate. And you try to seed a bit of the art. That well, you've chosen a good meaning and I try to give you a, a, seed a potential alternative meaning. <laughs> <laughs> so what Adler says, directly quoted from him, no experience is in itself cause of our success or failure. We do not suffer from the shock of our experience, the so-called trauma, but instead we make out of them whatever suits our purposes. So quite easily, if Astrophone wanted to go around today, get a bit of sympathy from the book, I could probably um, you know, get away with rocking up to work late, do anything like that. If that was my goal, then I could <laughs> manufacture some yes. real upset and be, and be really shook by someone just rummaging through the car. But uh, obviously, that's not the goal. So then, you know, nothing really happened of it. Sooner or later, I'll find out what they actually stole and maybe <laughs> I will end up like that, but who knows? Yeah, exactly. So if your goal was to, uh, as you say, have a sickie from work, you could really drum up in yourself a sense of anxiety or if, if your goal was to move house, you could really drum it up to your landlord to say, hey, it's not safe here, I've got to get out. Mm-hmm. But as you say, if your goal is just to cop on the, on the chin and move on, then you're, you're not really feeling any anxiety whatsoever. So if we think back to our mate, Joel, uh, not our mate, your mate, Joel, uh, who at the very start, he had that big sense of anxiety. He wanted to make something of himself, but he couldn't really bring himself to go outside. Well, what, what were his goals in that sense? Well, let's think about it from the parents' point of view. We've all got interesting uh, kind of relationships with parents, especially as teenagers. And how would they feel if Joel shut himself inside his room all day? 
you know, you put yourself in their shoes. If you're a little bit worried about Joel, you want him to go out there and mingle with society and be successful in some kind of way. And you'd start wondering, shit, do we raise Joel properly? What did we do wrong? And then you'd probably try in every way to just bring him back into normal existence. Yeah, exactly. So then the outcome of this here is obviously Joel is going to get the attention of his parents. The parents are going to be worried. The parents are going to reach out. The parents are going to try and do whatever they can to look after him and bring him back to society and bring him back outside. And that's pretty much exactly what Joel wanted. Joel wanted to be coddled. He wanted to be looked after. He wanted someone to come and you know treat him with kid gloves uh, and I guess blunt the forces of the outside world and just protect him a little bit. And uh, by him manufacturing this sense of anxiety about not wanting to go outside, then he's got exactly what he wanted. So such stories as this of reclusive people, supposedly in psychology, it's a very, very common occurrence. In one sense, we doubt he's satisfied. We doubt that he's actually happy. But there's no doubt he's taking actions that are in line with his goals because if he was to go outside, then there's going to be a whole new state of change that he'd have to go through. One of the authors of this book, I'm not sure if it was uh, Ishiro or Fumitake, but one of them, they said they were uh, reading a book in a coffee shop and uh, as a waiter walked past them, they spilled a coffee on them and uh, specifically on their jacket and it was the nicest piece of clothing they had. It was their best jacket and they was, he was just saying, look, I couldn't help it. I just, I jumped up and I screamed at the top of my lungs. I just blew my top. I yelled at him. Uh, I'm not normally one who would speak loudly in public places but at this point, I was just so furious. Uh, he'd spilled coffee on me. He'd spilled coffee on my jacket and I couldn't help it. I was just so angry that I flew into this fit of rage and started just tearing this bloke to shreds. Yeah, pretty surprising from a psychologist who wrote this book. <laughs> yeah. Maybe uh, you should read his book. <laughs> but in a sense, like surely no matter how you look at it from his perspective, like come on, he got coffee spilt on his jacket, new jacket, bloody barista. He's got every right to be pissed off, you'd think. Well, you'd think that, that uh, you just have that instant pang of just this deep-seated anger where you were just boiling and then you, you blew your lid. So it was a very clear cause and react there. Coffee spilt on you. You get angry, your emotions were so uncontrollable that you just reacted, you got up and started yelling. So I guess in one way, looking at that, it seems like it's uncontrollable. But then, well, you got to think about, okay, well, what then if you if the bloke was so angry, so furious that he couldn't control himself? What if he had a knife in his pocket and uh, stood up, ripped it out and, and stabbed this barista in the chest with a knife? You could just say, well, it was uncontrollable. I was so angry. He spilled coffee on me. I had so much rage that I just couldn't help it. So it's not my fault. So that's probably the aetology explanation. If you flip at it and look at it from the teleology explanation, it's not that you flew into rage and started shouting. It's actually that you wanted to shout so you used rage to get mm. to that point. Yeah, again, it's uh, by if you look at it in the the cause and effect way, you're just saying that it's not your fault. It's the outside world. You don't bear any responsibility. The responsibility is purely on the person who spilled the coffee on you. But of course, that's a pretty um, that's a pretty dodgy way of looking at it. I think, and I don't mm. think that would really stand up in a court of law if you murder a bloke because they spilled coffee on you and you just got so uncontrollably <laughs> angry. Of course, the other way to look at it is you wanted to shout. And so you fabricated this sense of anger and rage inside of you. They're not saying that emotions don't exist. Of course, everyone gets emotional. But in this sense, you've really heightened your sense of anger based on this small thing of getting coffee spilt on you. Obviously, there's another way you can do this. And I'd say, Asha, you'd be able to do this quite easily because we're just 
talking about it. You've never really been that angry in your life, have you? I think not in public anyway. I don't think I'd, like if I was in a coffee, I don't think I'd get up and start yelling and stab, staring, stab, and stabbing a bloke in the chest. That's pretty rare, uh, rare, <laughs> rare beast to start stabbing a bristle like that. But, you know, the other way you can do it, you can just explain your concerns without raising your voice. They would have probably sincerely apologized back. Maybe they would have arranged to get a dry clean. They probably would have thrown in a free bacon and egg roll there just mm. to soothe the concerns. Potentially, that's what I'd probably work for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And logically in your brain, deep down, you know this is possible. Mm. It's probably going to get a better result for this whole situation. But for some reason, you choose not to go down that path. Yeah. He actually says that it's almost like a, a, a lack of courage and a lack of confidence in yourself because you know that this is all possible. And if you just calmly explain it and everybody rationally thinks about the situation, everything is going to work out for everyone. But if you don't have the confidence in yourself that you can actually just calmly and logically explain yourself, then you think the best way out of this is to just act all uh, filled with rage and anger and blow up in front of everyone, get everyone so embarrassed that they come and pander to you because that seems like an easier way out for you to get what you want. Yeah, it reminds me of like kids growing up as a teenager, uh, getting angry, trying to get into a fight with the goal of impressing uh, girls and trying to maybe pick up for the evening if you think about that anger, purely manufactured to get the attention of the girls, but in a sense, that's easier and takes a lot less courage than actually going up to the girl and just being straight about it. So again, this this anger is kind of manufactured just to impress people in a really empty mm. kind of way. Yeah. So basically what they're saying is that anger is a tool and all emotions really are a tool. It's not that your emotions control you. It's that you control your emotions and you use them as a tool to... Uh, to achieve the goals that you want to achieve. Now, I just realized, I said I never got angry in public. I just remembered a small, very small trivial example, but this is when we're on a road trip. I must have been, I don't know, six or seven. So, my younger brother, Nige, was probably four or five. Six or seven. This is the only memory you get of anger. <laughs> Jesus. Well, I was using anger as a tool. I remember that uh, mum and dad had got a pack of the twisties hmm. and they told us to share the twisties. Um, but then I pretended that I was asleep and so, Nigel ate all the twisties because my intention was that, oh, well, Nigel ate all that packet. So, they gave me a second packet so I could get a full packet of twisties for myself. Mm. And anyway, well, then I woke up and they said, no, nah, sorry, you missed it basically. You're, you're asleep. You missed out on the twisties. Then I really lost my shit. Started getting so angry that I didn't get my half a pack of twisties. And my goal there was to get a packet of twisties. But thankfully, my parents were a bit smarter. They saw through that bullshit and they said, no, nah, bad luck, you're out. But anyway, I was using anger as my tool there Mate, that to try to get the twisties. <laughs> For well, a very long almost time, two decades twisties. now. <laughs> <laughs> you really wanted those twisties. Let's think of a, another example here. And uh, this is another client of the psychologist who had a female student who came in and she was concerned about her fear of blushing. She'd always turn red when she went to public. And she said there was this bloke here that she really wanted, right? He was a real hot dude and a real weapon apparently everything like that and so she secretly had feelings for him but wasn't ready to divulge into them and once her fear was cured she thought she'd be able to confess her desire for him so it's really this fear of blushing that's that's stopping her going out after him now the uh again one of the the author here said look i can cure your fear of blushing it's actually very easy to cure i've got a very very simple solution for you the problem is if i cured this you'd actually probably want the fear back. You'd prefer to have the fear of blushing than to be cured of the fear of blushing. Now, mm. obviously, to her, she thinks, that's not true at all. I, I want to get rid of this fear of blushing, then I'll be more confident, then I can get the, the man of my dreams. Uh, but uh, th our psychologists are a little bit more clever. They actually realize that maybe she actually doesn't want 
this fear of blushing cured and she actually prefers having this fear of blushing. Yeah, that would be much easier than actually having no excuse to go up to him and uh, having the courage to interact in that situation. Because obviously, like all of us, she's afraid that if she does go up after him, then there's a chance that she might get rejected. If that happened, she'd lose even more confidence and go backwards rather than forwards. So they're saying that she almost um, almost created, or even if she didn't create this, but she's clinging to this idea that, okay, I've got this blush, uh, I can't possibly go up and talk to someone because as soon as I do, I'll blush and I'll be embarrassed and they won't like me. So... In, in, in a way, covering up of her fear of rejection, she's injecting something else. And of course, for you, it could be anything. It could be that you put on an extra few kgs and say, oh, I, I don't have the confidence to go and talk to this person until I lose a couple of kilos. It could be that oh, I've got, I don't know, some eye twitch that I don't want them to see. Like whatever it is, whatever your, your, uh, your strange tick is, uh, you're using that effectively as a way to protect yourself. Mm. And uh, I remember reading maybe in this book, maybe another but. A lot of eating disorders are based in this same thing uh, where people choose to eat a lot more and put on a lot more weight than they would otherwise as a goal of not being able to be attracted by the opposite sex and having to deal with that extra problem in their life. So this Adlerian psychology, uh, it doesn't deny the existence of things like this. It doesn't deny the existence of obviously this woman blushes or obviously we get emotional and emotions uh, are very powerful things. But what Adler's saying he's, is he rejects the idea that we can't control these things. Of course, if we wanted to, we could control these things. We could reduce our level of emotions so that they don't control us. We could obviously just get over our blushing. Hey, we blush at the end of the day. No one really cares that much if you blush. Uh, but Adler's saying that we are not controlled by our emotions. We're not controlled by our past. But what we are doing is we're using these things as tools to get what we want and generally getting what we want is staying comfortable, not taking risks, not having the courage to get out and do the things that we want to do. So a lot of people out there might describe themselves as unhappy people, for example. And you might say like Joel, like the other example has said, that you really want to change right at this minute claiming that you just wish you could just be reborn into this other person who didn't have all these problems that we do. And even after all these claims, then why still can't we change? And this is because we're always making this persistent decision not to change our lifestyle. That's a pretty big banger, saying that anybody can change at any time. You can change the way you see yourself. You can change the things you do. And the only reason that you can't change is because you actively choose not to change. Obviously, a lot of people would say, no, no, no way, I want to change, I want to change. But deep down, really, they don't want to change. Uh, and uh, I'd say that's a pretty fair banger that you need, to, you need to really think about. They say it's like driving an old familiar car, might rattle a bit. You know, Maybe when you turn too sharp, there's a little squeak. Uh, maybe there's a, a strange hum coming out of the engine that uh, is a little bit concerning. But at the same time, you kind of know exactly what's happening. It hasn't let you down in the past. It's probably not perfect, but it gets you from A to B. On the other hand, if you think, okay, I'm going to go out and buy a new car, there's always a risk of what could be. There's always a risk that that car could blow up. And so maybe it is just safer to stick with your old dodgy, rattly little piece of, piece of crap. So like the old bomb that Ash showed us hopped into and started driving, there's always anxiety generated by changing and disappointment to not changing. So Adlerian psychology, it's a psychology of courage because all our problems, our unhappiness and everything like that, it can't be blamed on our past or our environment because as we said, determinism, X doesn't always have the same result for everyone. It's actually all about courage 
to deal with the uncertainty that comes with change. So Big Bad Adler, he says that all humans innately have two things. First, we enter the world completely helpless. And second, we have this universal desire to escape the feeling of being helpless. So he says we've got this pursuit of superiority. We want to get better. We know we suck uh, and we know that we don't want to suck anymore. So we want to get better. We want to change. We want to improve ourselves. And the counterpart of this pursuit of superiority of getting better is the feeling of inferiority. We all have something we want to improve and get better at and we all have various goals that we're working towards. But because we aren't there yet, we feel lesser because, because of that. So, he says that these two things are not bad things, both the pursuit of superiority and the feeling of inferiority. These are actually not bad things and in fact, they're quite healthy things in that they're sort of stimulants. You know, they, they drive you forward, they make you want to improve. So, the, the toddler lying helplessly on the floor wants to stand up and walk on two legs. Uh, any advance in, in science and modern technology was because of a feeling of inferiority and the pursuit of superiority. They wanted to strive to improve and move forward. So, this feeling of inferiority in itself is not a bad thing and it can actually be a good thing. But it all turns to shit when this feeling of inferiority, which is good, becomes an inferiority complex. So, for example, feeling of inferiority might be, I'm not very well educated, so I need to go out there and work harder than everyone. But when this turns into the complex, it's a massive negative. It turns into, I'm not well educated, so I'm never going to succeed. I've got no chance in life. So, what's even the use of trying? All you get is pain when I just wanted sunshine, I got rain. I slipped that into the notes. There was a smash mouth lyrics there. If anyone's listening to the song All Star, you might have picked that up. Uh, But uh, basically, uh, this feeling of inferiority makes us want to take a step forward and progress. But when that turns into an inferiority complex, when we lose the courage to take a step forward and all we feel is I'm not good enough, I'll never be good enough, it doesn't matter if I try or not. When you lose the courage to make forward progress, that's when inferiority becomes a really bad thing. So, this inferiority complex manifests itself in really interesting and unusual ways. Obviously, if you've got the feeling of inferiority, the obvious thing to do is just improve yourself. But with the complex, you might actually go the real short route and cheat in the way to get there. And you might actually manufacture a superficial illusion of superiority. Mm. You might go out there and buy the best brand of t-shirt or something or the car. Or you might start name dropping in a conversation Mm. to uh, improve your status perceived and things like that that's it so basically uh if you feeling inferior is fine you move forward you want to become superior but if you get to the point where you think well i'm never going to get there then the only way to do it is to actually pretend that you're already there and start putting on the show and so the uh the authors are saying that really the only person who boasts about all of their past achievements is a person who is actually no good the person who is actually killing it, the person who is actually superior, they don't need to boast. They've got the track record to prove it. They're not the ones uh, shouting at the, the top of their lungs on the Friday night at the bar saying how good they are. They actually just are good. So, another example here which seems like the opposite but it's actually a very similar thing and this is the person who assumes in a real boasting matter about all their misfortunes they've had, their upbringing. They're always talking about the shit that's happened in the past, the shit work day they've had and all the shit that they have to go through all the time. So, they're actually making themselves special in a similar but very different kind of way and that's by the way of their experiences of misfortune. And by using this misfortune, they're trying to put themselves above others. 
So these people are using this uh, misfortune that they're touting to make themselves so special in a way that almost is trying to control the people around them. So they're trying to control how people speak to them. They're trying to control how people behave around them by saying, obviously, you gotta you got to treat them with kid gloves. It almost links back to uh, your mate Joel at the very start. <laughs> I don't think he's actually your mate. But uh, Joel at the very start in that he was by saying, oh, I can't possibly go outside. I'm, I've shut myself in. I'm too nervous. I'm too anxious. I'm too scared to go outside and face the world. That's a way of controlling how other people act around him because ev- mm. obviously everyone's going to treat him very different. If uh, he puts on this front of weakness and fragility, everybody's going to treat him like he's different and like he's special and everyone's going to want to look after him. So in many ways in our culture, weakness is actually really strong and, and powerful and used by a lot of people. For one example, one of the most powerful people in our culture is the baby. If you think about it, it really just rules everybody around and cannot be dominated. So, And the baby rules over the adults through weakness. And <laughs> yeah, this exactly. is through evolution, obviously, when it cries and it's uh, pretty much hopeless just sitting there flailing its arms around. But it's through this weakness that it actually has control. So this uh, book and this episode, it's, a, it's probably a fair whack, uh, a whack on the, the side of the head, not in the sense of the creativity book, but just in that really it sort of shows you a few different things or a, a bit of a twist on, on common situations that you might have gone through in the past where you realize, well, actually, what did that actually mean? So it's sort of that twist on the idea that aetiology is saying that it's about cause and effect, but teleology is saying that actually, what are your goals and how are your actions right now working towards your goals? And as, as I said, it's sort of a bit harsh, but uh, they use, I guess, the analogy of the doctor here. Imagine if you went to a doctor, you had a cold, you had a high fever, you go to the doctor and the doctor says to you, well, okay, you've got sick today. That's because you went out yesterday. You weren't wearing a jumper. It rained. You didn't have an umbrella. You got wet. Uh, and because you got wet, because you got cold and you didn't uh, fix yourself up, well, today you've got a cold. Obviously, that isn't very helpful at all because you would want the doctor to say, okay, well, what can you prescribe? What medicine can you give? What shots can you give me? What sort of special attention can you give me to try and fix me? Uh, Obviously, we don't want the doctor to just say, well, this happened yesterday, so today you're like this. We would much prefer if the doctor says, well, here's actually how you can fix it. And this is what Adelirian psychology gives us. It actually gives us a medicine to really get to the root cause for a lot of our problems. So for all of us, we can have a think about what is the purpose of this emotion that we're having in our life? And is there another approach that is just sitting there that we've deliberately made ourselves unaware of, which is actually going to take a lot of courage to take, but it's going to be lead to a much happier and more fruitful life. So in part two of this book, we're going to look at another massive uh, big head whacker of an idea. And that's the idea that Almost all of the problems that we face are largely due to the fact that we're trying to please everyone. We're trying to get acceptance and we're trying to get recognition from everyone. And really the only way to cure all of our problems is to have the courage to be disliked, the courage to live life on our own terms, and the courage to do what we always wanted to do. 